And he's all, y'all sounded pretty good. Almost told Sean, keep going, man, we can do this all night. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to praise the Lord? I tell you what, you know, we, we see the world out there doing what it's doing, and, and we're thinking, you know, we used to be in all of that mess. Then we get called out of it, you know, and we get called into the church and into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we think, you know, this is more fun. <laughs> this, go, this goes a lot further than all of that stuff in the world, because, you know, in the world we were doing things that was wearing us out, physically and otherwise. Now what we're doing in the, in, in the church, we're also doing in eternity. And that means we're not getting diminished The Lord is building us up for a time where we will stand before Him in eternity, worshiping Him, and nothing is going to change that because the sun will never go down, because there won't be a sun needed. We're going to have the light of the glory of God from the throne that we're going to stand before, and we're going to be worshiping Him forever. And we don't understand what forever is until we get there, but we're going to be doing it forever. So, praise the Lord. I, well, I, I don't know. I'm a little excited about tonight's study. We're going to be... Hello. What happened to my... Is it coming? There it is. They scare me sometimes up there. I'm going to have to go up there and... In love, of course. <laughs> but we're going to be looking at the church of... Philadelphia, and we're not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, because if we were, then I'd be putting Liberty Bells up there, Philadelphia Eagles, and Rocky. You know, we're not going to do that. Tonight we're going to be looking at the Church of Philadelphia. And what excites me about this particular church tonight is that out of all the churches so far, this one has the most prophetic connection for us than the other five before. Now, next week in the the church of Laodicea, we're also going to have some uh, uh, prophetic connection, but it's it's going to be in in a way that we're going to see what the church is like as well in this day and time. What we're going to see right now is that there is a church of Philadelphia and there is a church of Laodicea. And I hope and pray that we are in the church of Philadelphia. And I hope that we'll understand that as we go along in our study of the Scriptures tonight. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And we'll begin reading. Again, Jesus is writing a letter to the sixth church of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but 
do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I read a story recently. I I chuckle because I I think, I, I don't think I could go through this particular experience myself. But I read a story recently about a man who happened to be visiting a friend who took him to a church service in a one-room church building, similar to this one, I'm sure, in the backwoods of Arkansas. Anybody here from Arkansas? Just want to make sure. Okay. Well, he didn't realize what kind of church it was until the minister started pulling rattlesnakes out of a burlap bag and passing them up one side of the aisle and down the other. And and the man had never seen anything like this before. I had some thoughts about putting some of those pictures, but I know that some of you just can't stand snakes. I'm I'm talking about myself. But anyway, you know. (laughs) But, but, But that's what was happening. He saw the minister pulling out these rattlesnakes, and he was passing them out to everybody in the aisles. Of course, a little small room church, there are not that many people, but, you know, you're, you're the only one in there, and you're, like, looking at every, all these snakes. And it started making him uncomfortable, and the man had never seen anything like this before, and he certainly wasn't interested in somebody handing him a snake. So frantically, he began turning one way and then another and looking for a way out of that building. But the only exit he could see was up past where the preacher was passing out the snakes. So turning to the person next to him, he asked him, Where's the back door? I've got to get out of here. And the person answered, we ain't got one. And the guy said, all right then, where would you like one? (laughs) That man was willing to open a whole new door for that church. And I think I would have done the same thing. (laughs) Well, in our text this evening, we find Jesus telling the church of Philadelphia, I am willing to open a whole new door for you. I am willing to open a whole new door for you. Well, let's learn about this little church and the city where it was located. But before we do, I'd like to review the churches where we've been. We started, of course, in Ephesus. That was just a commercial for Calvary Chapel. That's nice, isn't it? I don't know why I put that there. Well, Ephesus, we called the Loveless Church. It did a lot of stuff, but uh, it had left its first love. So the Lord told them to return. Repent and return to your first love. 
And then we went to Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. And the Lord didn't give it any condemnation whatsoever. It just told that church, don't fear those who will try you. Don't fear. Then we went to Pergamos, and we saw that it was the compromising church. And the Lord told them to repent and to rely on God's truth. Now, you might see a little pattern here. I think something we need to take with us and remember. That all of these churches, the seven churches that are mentioned, are, are actually have, have characteristics of what the church is like today. Because there are a lot of churches like Ephesus that do a lot of stuff, but they just don't have love for Jesus anymore. And then there's other churches like Smyrna that uh, get persecuted. And we see a lot of that, of course, in, a, in, in, the, in, in the many churches that are in other countries, you know, where, where they're being persecuted uh, solely because they're Christians. And then there are churches, even in our country, that are compromising. They compromise the Word of God. And, you know, they, they say it says something that it doesn't say, or they say it doesn't say things that it, it does say. And that's why they have to get back to God's truth. Then we went to Thyatira, and this got worse. It went to the corrupt church, a church that was teaching false doctrines. And they were told to obey and to be faithful. Be faithful to the true things. They were holding on to some good things, but uh, their, their compromising was hurting the whole of the church. And then last week we end up seeing the church of Sardis as the dead church. They certainly had a lot of movement as if they were alive, but Jesus said they're dead. So they were told to wake up. And to strengthen that which remains. And the waking up part is to wake up out of being dead. And there again is another pattern that we see. You know, we can lose our first love uh, other than those that are persecuted for the truth. You know, we can move from losing our love to compromising the, the, the love of God and the Word of God and then corrupting it. And then eventually you just die. So I find it refreshing that we come now to the city of Philadelphia and to the church that is there, and focus our attention on that church to which Jesus writes this letter. And it was, a historic, it was an historical church in that it represented, and represents even still, certain types of churches in every age. There has always been a church of Philadelphia, just like we've seen that there was probably always a church that were similar to these up there, throughout the ages of the church. But there are Philadelphia churches all through the history of the church. Those that are faithful and Christ-honoring. And again, I want you to, if you're writing down notes, they are faithful and Christ-honoring. The church of Philadelphia we will call the faithful church. But if we wanted to expand the title of this, it would be the faithful and Christ-honoring church. Ephesus was faithful at doing a lot of stuff, but they stopped loving the Lord. But in Philadelphia, they served the Lord faithfully, and they loved the Lord faithfully, and they honored the Lord faithfully. So that's our destination, which is Philadelphia. And that's seen in the first 
uh, sentence, or I should say the first phrase of the sentence in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things. Well, as we've been doing in the last few weeks, getting an idea of where the church of Philadelphia is, there it is right there. And there's a few things uh, we see where Sardis is, of course, we'll talk about that. That was about 25 to 30 miles away from, from Sardis. But there's an interesting connection that we're going to talk about as between Smyrna and Philadelphia. Remember, Smyrna was the persecuted church and Philadelphia is the faithful church. And they just kind of across from each other about 65 miles. So if you saw that, they're right there, Sardis. We'll talk about all of that in just a moment. Uh, as I said, the city of Philadelphia itself was located some 25 miles southeast of Sardis and was situated in the beautiful and very fertile Kogamus Valley at the foot of Mount Tumolus. Today, the town of Alashir, or Alashahir, I should say, Alashahir, is connected, <coughs> actually, to Itzmir. And remember that Itzmir is the modern-day city of Smyrna. And it's connected to Smyrna. Philadelphia is connected to Itzmir by a 65-mile railway. So there's a railway that goes right across that, that whole valley. Which is, I find it interesting because those are the two churches that received only commendations from the Lord. So they have a little connection. Philadelphia was known for its great agricultural production uh, with grapes topping the list. So they grew a lot of grapes there in, uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, and that brings up the, the next thing that uh, they became famous for. Because of their grape production, they were also well known for their... Wine making, and so on and so forth. Uh, and interestingly enough, besides the many gods that they worshipped in this city, they also worshipped the god Dionysius, who was the god of wine and revelry. I think that god, uh, most people don't know the name, but they just worship that god all the time in our day and age, don't they? Somebody used to tell him, you know what you worship? You don't worship whatever you say you worship. You worship Dionysius. They'll look at you like, huh? (laughs) But that's what it is. Dionysius was the god of wine and revelry. Now, one thing that we should note about this city is that it had many earthquakes. It was known for uh, very unsettled land. In fact, in 17 AD, and I believe we were talking about this uh, earlier in one of the other churches... The city itself was destroyed, that is, Philadelphia was destroyed by an earthquake, and with the help of Emperor Tiberius, the city was rebuilt. And the name of the city, by the way, which means brotherly love, Philadelphia means brotherly love, comes from the loyalty which King Attalus of Pergamon, who sponsored the founding of the city, the love that he demonstrated to his brother King Eumenes. Attalus actually was nicknamed Philadelphos, which means One who loves his brother. So they named the city kind of after his nickname, which was uh, Philadelphos, and so they called it Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Phila, or that part of the word, comes from the word phileo. If we've studied a little bit of Greek, you realize that uh, there are, are four words that are used in the New Testament for love. One, of course, is agape. Love, which is the uh, uncompromising love of God toward us. And then there is phileo, which is one used as uh, brotherly love. 
so phileo is, is the word for love. And then adelphos is the word for brother. So Philadelphia or Philadelphos. So that's where we get that word. Today in that town of Alashahir, which is the Turkish name and Turkish translation, the population today is around 40,000 people, about 40,000 people. And there are five Christian churches there. There may, be, there may be more now, but there are about five Christian churches existing to this day in the midst of a larger Muslim presence. Now, out of 40,000 people, there are about 1,000 to 1,500 Christians there right now. There may be more. So that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good amount of, of Christians in a very Muslim area. And the fact that the name of the ancient city, Philadelphia, means brotherly love sums up what a spirit-filled and a spirit-led believer in Jesus Christ is all about. That's what we are supposed to be all about. They, were, they are not only in love with Jesus, but with their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this, of course, we received from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, from the apostles. We are to love one another. We are especially concerned ourselves with brotherly love, brotherly kindness. We could talk a lot about that. But in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, well, there's the other map. Well, there's the valley again that goes across from Smyrna to Philadelphia. That's where the railway is. But in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, John says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So brotherly love was very important and is very important in the church. He goes on in verse 10 to say, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So as long as we're loving one another as Christ would have us to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, then as we're in the light, there's no cause for stumbling. Which makes me think that a lot of times we stumble because we stop loving the way God wants us to love each other. So think, you know, keep that in mind, you know, when you, when you think about this issue of, I want to love some people, but I don't really care too much for, about others. Because as believers, we're to love each other. When Jesus died, he didn't, uh, you know, kind of say, well, I'm really dying for him, but not really for him, you know. He died for all. Now, the effect of that great death, of course, is going to be upon those who believe in him. But the point is he loved the world so much, God did, that he gave his only begotten son. Verse 11 says, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. Now, if you don't want to be in darkness, then you've got to stop hating your brother and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So a lot of times when we lose sight of where God wants us to be, it's because we stop loving one another. And we've built up hatred, animosities that we should not have one with the other. We need to remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 133 verse 1 when he said, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And, and, and this, of course, being Old Testament, didn't matter. <laughs> it still rings true in the New Testament. It still rings true in the church of today. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We share the love of Christ. We share the knowledge of Christ. We share the Word of God. We share the love of God. And this is how the unity of the church, and, and, and when we talk about unity, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, and we realize that when we find ourselves being in unity because we love one another as Christ loved the church, 
which is Ephesians 5 as well, then we begin to realize the light that is around us is going to help us to direct our paths because we are where God wants us to be as far as our relationships are concerned. In John chapter 13, Jesus himself said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The world is going to know that we are believers in Jesus Christ because we love one another. When they look at all kinds of things that are happening outside of that love of God. You know, there is that uh, little church, that little Baptist church, I forget the name of it, Westboro or whatever. And they go at all, they go to all these funerals and they carry these signs that God hates the USA and God hates you know, these soldiers are, you know, fighting and doing all kinds of stuff. Or they, you know, and they just, they just spew all this hatred. But they, you know, don't think that they just don't love unbelievers. They don't love Christians either. They find themselves to be the only ones that God loves. Do you, do you find that to be irrational? That this little group of people, you know, be, feel like that they're the only ones. That God will love because they hate. You know, they say they hate sin, but they hate people. God told us to love. Love those who hate you and despitefully use you. Love them. And hate them not. So they're not doing what Jesus says, are they? Hello? They're not doing it, are they? So Jesus says, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's only going to happen if we practice it. But you can't practice it if you stay away from each other. That's why it's not good to miss church. Because every time we get together, we get to practice what God wants us to practice with each other, which is to love one another as Christ loved us. It does make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. I tell you what, the greatest revivals in the church have happened. And I believe one of the greatest revivals happened back in the late 60s, early 70s, during what was called the Jesus Movement, because there were a bunch of hippies out there after smoking pot and messing up their brains, you know. They came to realize that Jesus was the only answer. The only answer. And they, and they came to the Lord. And they started right there. They started with what Jesus said about loving one another. And they started loving each other. And then they started loving the people that came to church with them that weren't dressed like they were. And, they, and it didn't matter. Little country church at the edge of town. That was, talking about, that was talking about Calvary Chapel, a song by Love Song. And they loved one another. People in shirts and ties and hippies, you know, all strung out. With not, not strung out like in drugs, but like their hair, you know. And then sitting on the, you know, and, 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 and worshiping together because they looked beyond the outward and they loved what was inside. That's when you know there's a revival because we do what Christ says to do. Have you ever seen a church that is alive and faithful to Christ? A church that focuses upon Jesus Christ? A church that makes Jesus Christ the center of its ministries and its activities. A church that focuses upon reaching and growing people for Christ. A church that focuses upon teaching people to love Jesus and to love one another more and more and more. This was the church of Philadelphia. This was the faithful and Christ-honoring church. 
And this is what I want this church to be. The same thing. The same way. Man, you're way too quiet after that. All right. Well, let's see what happens. I know you're tired. It's Wednesday. Stay awake with me, though. I'll, I'll do whatever I can to keep you awake. Let's look at the description now of Jesus, of the one who writes the letter. It says, these things says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This description of Jesus is the first one that doesn't come from the vision in Revelation chapter 1. If you've been keeping up with what's going on, we've been taking parts of that vision at at the end of Revelation chapter 1. And Jesus has been taking those parts and showing himself to be all of those things to each of those churches. Or one segment of what he is to each of those churches. Most of them, as I'll say in just a moment, most of those characteristics were characteristics that will bring upon judgment or bring judgment upon these churches that need to wake up. So they're, they're kind of tied to judgment. But in the fir- as I said, the first five letters, every initial description of Jesus in the opening verse of each letter came from that vision of the glorified Son of God. This one doesn't. Why? Simply because that vision presented Christ, as I said, to those first five churches, except for Smyrna. To the, to the four churches, except for Smyrna. It presented Christ in judgment. He doesn't come to the church of Philadelphia in judgment. And when you see his description to the church of Smyrna, it doesn't have a, a it doesn't have a, 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 a statement of, of judgment to it. What he said to, to them was that he's the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So he was encouraging them, as persecuted as you guys are going to be, you're going to have life. So you see the difference. All the others had, you know, these descriptions that, that, dealt, that will deal with judgment. But he doesn't come to the church of Philadelphia in judgment. His character here is completely different in that there is no judgment for the true Christ-honoring church. And again, Smyrna would not receive this judgment either because it did not receive any condemnation whatsoever. And so there is no condemnation or judgment for those who are in Christ. So it was assured that the church in Smyrna was for the most part a church that was in Christ, just as the church of Philadelphia is a church that is in Christ, because they were faithful to the Word of God, and they were faithful to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were faithful to the cross, and they were faithful to honor Christ. And it reminds us, and it should remind us, that in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it tells us there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. And it is written in such a way that it says no condemnation. I know that's my great theological description, but I mean, that's what it says. No condemnation. The strength of it lies in the fact that to those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Period. The end. Will we take advantage of that? No, we don't take advantage of it because it humbles us that the Lord would do that for us. To those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation. (laughs) Excuse me. 
So as with Smyrna, Jesus does not apply his judgmental character to the church of Philadelphia. But he does say that he is holy. He says, this is the one writing to you, Philadelphia. He who is holy. So the Lord first identifies himself as holy. This characteristic, by the way, has a twofold meaning with one fundamental idea. And that of being separate or set apart. So he who is holy is set apart or he's separate, generally speaking. Christ's holiness establishes that he is set apart from his creation. He created all things, but he is above all that he created. You all do understand that. Because false religions and Eastern religions will say that he is only a part of his creation, or that he is in his creation in some way, that God is in that flower and God is in that chair, and so on and so forth. Now, there's a third, the, the, the third one that I'm going to give you is actually going on to the second meaning, and that is that he's separate from all evil. He's separate from all evil, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But as far as being separate from his creation, it just means that he's not a created thing. But in fact, he is the creator of all things. So if you remember John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. That does not mean that He had a beginning and an end. He has no beginning and an end because He's eternal. And this is what the next statement says. All things were made through Him. The grammatic context here, of course, is what? We're talking about the Word who was with God and is God, as it, as it says there, uh, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. What is said in verse 1? The word was God. So we have to understand then that he is not a part of his creation. He had created all things, but he is above his creation. He isn't to be confused now or to be identified with the natural world in any way. This is the second meaning of his being holy. His holiness means that he is separate from all evil. Even though he died for sinners, and he took upon himself the sins of the world, he never sinned. There's a a few clear passages, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and then this one that says that he was completely free from all moral contamination and corruption, and that's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So that makes it very clear. There was no sin done by Jesus, nor was there any deceit spoken by Jesus ever, ever. So he who is holy is writing to the church of Philadelphia, but also he who is true. Now, holy and true is a description given to God and to Christ throughout the Scriptures. But what does it mean for Him to be true? Well, first of all, it means that He's genuine and He's real. So there's a double meaning as well, just as He who is holy. Uh, In one sense, it means He's genuine and real. Jesus is the real Lord. He is the real Messiah. He's the real deal. 
All others who claim to be Christ are deceivers. You read Matthew 24, the very first thing that Jesus says and warns His disciples is about false Christs. It's about beware of the deceptions that are coming in the last days. And there are a lot of people that continue to put themselves out as if they are the Messiah. I used to think, you know, you, you would hear about these guys, these new age people, you know, calling, calling themselves the Messiah and whatnot. There's all kinds of names. I don't want to go through that whole list. And I thought after a few years, well, things kind of died out and there's a few crazies here and there doing that. But now you get on the, you get on the, on the worldwide web, man, and it's like, well, there's more people than I thought that still think that they're Messiahs themselves, you know. But Jesus is the real Messiah. He is genuine. The other meaning of the term, that he is true, he who is true, is that he's trustworthy and he's reliable. You can trust him. Because anything he says, anything he says and everything he says, you can, you can rely upon. You can rely upon it. Because Jesus can neither lie nor lead people astray. Jesus cannot lie. And let me add something to that. He will not lie. Jesus cannot lie, and He will not lie. And the other thing to know is that He will not lead people astray. So you can say He cannot lead people astray, because He will not lead people astray. In Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18, very quickly here, the statement by Paul is that thus God determines to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, which means the unchangingness of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So there it tells us, it's impossible for God to lie. Well, Jesus is God the Son, so He's not going to lie either. We might have strong consolation when fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope said before. So, it's impossible for God to lie. The Lord has never lied to us. I can say that a lot of people from pulpits today will lie to you. And they'll tell you that Jesus wants you to have whatever you want to have. I mean, that's, that's kind of a simplistic statement. Kind of generalized, but... That's pretty much it. Jesus wants you to have whatever you want to have. You want riches, you can have them. You just got to speak them. Speak them into existence. Now see, that that to me is, is, is not genuine. It's not real. And it's not trustworthy. And I've talked to people who said, you know, I, I used to think that. and I used to think, why, why doesn't God want to bless me? Well, they were just duped into thinking that's, that that's what God wanted for them. No. God wants us to realize something, that if we have Jesus, we have everything we need. And Paul and Peter is the one that tells us, he says, in Christ we have everything we need for life and godliness. What more do you need? God will provide what you need so that you can do good for your family, that you can do good for those around you, and whatever it is that he gives you, it is to glorify him. We've been talking about that as far as our stewardship is concerned. So understand this, he who is true... He who is holy, he who is true, means that we can count on him. 
You can count on Jesus. But again, we have to be realistic and we have to be rational in what we can count on him, count on him for. If we trust all of his word, then we can trust that he's going to bless us with what we need for this life. But if we, tr- if we count on him or think that we can count on him on, on, on unrealistic uh, suggestions or un- unrealistic supplications, uh, you know, then the Lord will say, if you want my will, I'm not going to give you that. <laughs> and then we can believe everything he says. Now, we truly can believe everything that the Lord says. We can believe everything that he says. And we can trust every promise. Every promise he's given us in his word, we can trust. Every promise that was given about Jesus coming to this earth the first time was fulfilled. Every promise in the Old Testament was fulfilled. Every promise that Jesus has made about his coming again and about what the world is going to be like, they are being fulfilled. And every promise will be fulfilled as Jesus has stated. But there's something else that we need to find out about Jesus in in verse 7 of Revelation 3. Before we go on, and he says, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now that's a little bit more, hmm, it's a little harder to understand. So let's consider that he who is holy, he who is true, and he who is sovereign. This speaks of his sovereignty. This phrase, the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. That's that's speaking of his sovereignty. It sums up his third attribute. It means that Jesus has control over all things. Jesus has control over all things. The description in Revelation 1 tells us that he has the keys... To Hades and death, so we can add that to what he is sovereign over. He has the keys to Hades and death. But essentially, what, uh, what he has with the keys of David and the keys of Hades and death is that he has the keys to life and death, doesn't he? He has the keys to life and death. He has the keys to heaven and hell. And even all of ministry, anything that pertains to ministry... He has the keys to. He has control over. You have the key. You have the control. You don't have the key. You don't go home tonight. Unless you got one of those cars. You don't need a key. They make those now. I don't think they have those in 57 Chevys, but I know they do in some new cars today. They, you know, you, you can actually just walk up. If you have something in your pocket, you can walk up and, you know, car starts and it opens for you. That's really good. Uh, if you're into stealing cars, you can kind of figure those things out. But I hope none of you are, so be careful. But he's the one who has the control over all things. Now, Jesus alone has the key of David. This, this is the point of all of this. Jesus alone has the key of David. The key that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. What is the key? Well, there is an event uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures... <coughs> That tells us of King Hezekiah, who had a faithful servant whose name was Eliakim. 
And this servant was the personal secretary to King Hezekiah. And he was put in complete charge of the king's affairs. No one could gain entrance into the king's presence without coming through Eliakim. By the way, Eliakim, when you read Isaiah 22, Eliakim is a type of Jesus Christ. So this servant alone determined who entered the king's court. And the Lord spoke to Isaiah the prophet one day, and this is, what he, this is part of what he said. I want you to go yourselves tonight to Isaiah 22, so write that down. But read the chapter itself, and notice, but in verse 22 it says, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open, and no one shall shut. And he shall shut, and no one shall open. That gives us indication that this statement about Eliakim was really a statement pointing to Jesus Christ. It is a prophetic statement. It is prophetic in that it gives Eliakim as the type of Jesus. So the key of David is the symbol of authority. Jesus Christ alone, alone, opens and shuts the door into God's court and presence. By the way, you know, when you look at that, that statement that's made there in verse 7, it, it says he has the key. Singular. Y'all see that? Make sure you mark that. Not the keys, but the key. If it was the keys of Hades and death, then you notice there would probably be two keys. One for Hades, one for death. But here is the key of David. That tells us no one else has that key. There's no little locksmith down the street in a little box. There's, you know, little kiosk making keys. There's one key. And Jesus has it. He alone opens and He alone shuts the door into God's court and presence. He alone determines who lives in heaven with God the Father. He alone grants entrance into the presence of God. The door of heaven is open and closed by Him and Him alone. No other person or being has that authority. Jesus Christ alone holds the key to open and shut the door to eternal life. Why is it that we want to lead people to Jesus? Because He alone has that authority. It isn't Jesus plus someone else. It's just Jesus alone. It isn't Jesus and the Pope. It isn't Jesus and Joseph Smith. It isn't Jesus and Charles Taze Russell from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Jehovah's Witnesses. Joseph Smith and the Mormons. Everybody wants to pal up with Jesus and say, yeah, yeah me and Jesus, yeah, man, we, we're, got, we're the ones that got the authority. No, only Jesus. No preacher that has 100,000 people in his church. And it's not him and Jesus. No, it's just Jesus alone. Just Jesus alone holds the key to open and shut the door to, to eternal life. Therefore, the church that focuses upon Jesus Christ can be assured that it shall live forever. The church that focuses upon Jesus Christ can be assured that it shall live forever. When the time comes, Jesus Christ shall open the door of heaven. The church that takes all of its ministries, all of its activities, all of its meetings, and makes Jesus Christ the center of all of those things, that church shall live forever. 
No other church that claims any kind of partnership with Jesus and the key. There's only one key, and Jesus is the one. That's why he said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Not one person comes to the Father except through me. So, in all of this being said to the church of Philadelphia, it's being said to it to show them you've been faithful. Because when we see the next verse, in verse uh, 8, we're looking at the commendation. Jesus commends them. He says, I know your works. Now, he doesn't go into great detail about their works. He just says, I know your works. But then he says, see, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Let me go over this very quickly with you because I think it's really essential for us not to lose sight of this. He says, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Folks, you believe that Jesus, when he saves you, he keeps you? That's because the Bible teaches that. And he's wanting to make it very clear that when we have come to Jesus Christ and he has truly saved us and he has changed us and he's given us a new mind and a new heart and a new vision and a new attitude that he will keep us eternally. He saves us. What a beautiful thought that is. He opens the door. No one can shut it. Not one. Include yourself, please. Not even you can shut that door. Because he could have said, you know, no one's open. Uh, I mean, no, I open the door and no one can shut it, but maybe you can. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. He, he says, no one. You're part of that no one. Uh, and then he says, for you have a little strength. Oh, I wish more people would read that. I, w- I wish more churches today would read that part. You have a little strength. Because there's churches today that will teach people, listen, man, you can do anything you want to do. Yes, I know we can do anything we want through Christ who strengthens us. Right? Y'all believe that, right? Because the Bible says that we can do all things through Christ. But we like to hear, we can do all things. Well, through Christ who strengthens us. No, it's we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He, Christ, strengthens us. Because we have little strength. In other words, we don't have very much power ourselves. Besides, we don't even have the power to save ourselves. We still need Jesus. So who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? If we can help Jesus out. We can't help Jesus out. Have kept my word. The the church in Philadelphia kept the word of God. Guarded it. Believed it. Trusted it. Did it. And then he says... Have not denied my name. Christ honoring. Never denying the name of Jesus. Man, I tell you what, we, we, can, we can take all kinds of causes in this life today. All kinds of causes. They're all out there. Some are good causes. You know, sometimes we have to go out there and try to help people, you know, fight cancer and, you know, things that, you know, matter to our families and stuff. Things that our own families have gone through and, and, and so, you know, we pray for, for that and all, and we go and, and help. But, you know, there's all kinds of causes, political causes, and, 
just, you know, on and on and on. And, and, but none of them, none of them should over, overtake the, the one cause that is Christ's cause. Because there are times when we have to deny the name of Jesus, not bring it up, not speak it, not say it, because we don't want to step on anybody's toes. And we lose sight of the one cause, which is to declare Jesus Christ as Lord of all. And Christian, that is our cause. That is our one cause. Now we can go fight cancer and help kids and you know and all of that that's okay that's that's what we need to do even rescue dogs from time to time because we're supposed to take care of them ourselves right isn't it terrible the way some people treat their animals god didn't teach us to do that so i mean you see but do we keep the cause of christ before all of this well they did in philadelphia as with all the other churches, Jesus told them that He knew their deeds. The, the entire panorama of the church's witness was before Him. And the Lord gives them words of commendation for their faithfulness. Now, though the good works are not further described, the church of Philadelphia abounded in authentic good works, in the power of the Holy Spirit, motivated by their love for Jesus Christ. And because of their faithful testimony and their faithful witness, Jesus places before them this open door. Now, most likely the door Christ opened for them was the same one that he had opened earlier for Paul at Ephesus, which was also a door of effective service. It's not just the door of eternal life, which it is, but it's also a door of effective service. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, this is something that Paul said you know, about the door that he was given to Ephesus. And he tells the Corinthian church that, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Other mentions of doors open for evangelistic opportunities include 2 Corinthians 12, I'm sorry, 2 verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. So he talks about that open door. And then there's Colossians 4 verse 3. Meanwhile, praying also for us that, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. What's interesting is when we get to Laodicea next week, we're going to see another door where Jesus actually tells that church, I stand at the door and knock. And he who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will sup with him. There's another door we're going to deal with, and that's next week. So you have the door open to eternal life that no one can shut. But no one can shut the door that God has given us as well to have effective ministry for Christ until the day of Jesus Christ comes. So to the church of Philadelphia, the Lord of the harvest was saying that if they would just walk through that door of opportunity that he was opening, that they would find the fields white unto harvest. And I can tell you this, the fields here in El Paso are white unto harvest. The fields here in our city, wherever we are, wherever we go, wherever we live, whatever we do, the fields are white for harvest. And Jesus was opening that they would find the fields white unto harvest. It would not be easy. It never is easy. For this church had only a little strength. 
And I'm sure they went through their times of persecution as well. And it wasn't a large church, just like the church in, in that city there that, is, that, that, that sits where, where Philadelphia was before. Allah Shahir, it's, it's, it's got a small church, but they're still there. It wasn't a large church. It had not many significant numbers. It probably lacked financial strength, but with what spiritual strength it had, it was faithful in the, in the glory of Jesus Christ. It was, it was faithful in and for the glory of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. It would be wise to invest our life, not on the basis of where there are large numbers or finances, but where the people are faithfully dependent on the Lord. Where people are faithfully dependent on the Lord. God has placed this open door, which no one can shut for each of us. All we have to do is step through it. It isn't our strength. We only have a little. But it is God who provides the opportunities and He equips us for the work. And we must understand as believers that if God is in control, which He is, that means that God will not only open that door, but He will not close it until the work has been completed. And I believe that there are times when the Lord is saying, I still got the door open, folks. I just want you to complete the work. I'll be with you. I'm not going to leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you. But He wants us to complete the work. What the Lord wants from us is to be faithful stewards. Where have I heard that before? He wants us to be faithful stewards to what He has given us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Yeah, that's only two verses there. That's why it's all crunched up. As each one has received a gift. We talked about that this week. Y'all have gifts. Amen? All right. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, which means to serve, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, that little church didn't have a lot, but they had the gifts that God gave them, and... They were faithful in those gifts. Let's go on to the exhortation because we're running out of time. Verses 9 through 11 of Revelation 3 is the exhortation that the Lord gives. Now an exhortation, as we said before, is not only a warning, it is also an encouragement. In this case, it is a little bit of both, but it is more encouragement than anything else. So the Lord says to, to them, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie... Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Is Jesus promoting uh, uh, people worship? No, he's not. Because we only worship one God. The, the idea of worship in this word, in, in the sense of it, is, is actually to bow, bow down, but not to them, but to him. Who has kept his hand upon that church. Because notice the next phrase, and to know that I have loved you. I want them to know I loved you and protected you, even through the greatest of persecutions and struggles that they've gone through. Then he says in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world 
to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Now we start getting into the prophetic connection that affects us now. Affects what's going to happen because you see, His coming to that hour of trial is, is speaking more of in, in the greater sense of the tribulation time that is yet to come, that is coming still. So we see then the church of Philadelphia standing in place of all the churches that are faithful to the Lord in whatever time frame. Well, this is the last time frame because we are living in the last days. The church faced hostile opposition from the unbelieving Jews. And that is something that we need to remember. They were unbelieving Jews, and and even Jesus says, they say they're Jews, but they're not. Remember that Paul said, there's those people who say they're Jews, but they're really not. Because you're not a Jew just on the outward, you're a Jew from the heart. And they weren't even that. And that's something we need to remember. False religion has always been a formidable antagonist against the true Christian faith. It was said by someone that the Philadelphia letter, and I quote, the Philadelphia letter reminds that uh, any true church at any time, and especially during the last days, meets satanic opposition through intimidation, religious ritualism, and hypocrisy. Opposition strengthened by mixtures of worldliness and religiousness. And he ends the statement, church and state. I want to tell you, that's where we are today. That's where we are today. And that's why I believe the Lord can come at any moment. That's where we are today in this, in this country of ours. We are meeting satanic opposition just because we believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. Just because we believe in the Bible and the Word of God. Just because we believe that Jesus died for the sins of men. And sins cannot be changed into anything else. Sin is sin, and that's the way it is. So now we're going to try to protect all these other things. Wait a minute. That's satanic opposition. It was satanic opposition in the times of the prophets. It was satanic opposition in the times of the apostles. And it is satanic opposition in the time of the church. Then and today. So verse 10 gives us a specific promise in regard to the great tribulation. To follow Jesus Christ is to learn how to endure. To persevere in what He has asked us to do because of who and what He asked us to become. This is called the perseverance of the saints. To hold on and obey Christ's Word no matter what we encounter in life brings us tremendous blessings here and in the life to come. But because of their faithfulness, the church of Philadelphia are promised that they will be kept out of the hour of testing which will come upon the whole world. And so every church age or every church period that there is a church of Philadelphia, they will be protected from the hour of temptation or the hour that is coming with great tribulation. Our faith will encounter heavy opposition. It it may not be just may encounter, it will encounter opposition. We may even suffer persecution because we're believers in Jesus Christ. It's happening to our brothers and sisters all over this world. But at no time will we experience the great affliction of tribulation. That that tribulation will bring upon those unbelievers unfortunate to still be alive. 
And when we get more into the book of Revelation, we're going to realize what the tribulation period is all about. And we're going to begin to realize why the Lord is going to take the church out of the way before he begins to deal in those seven years. Not only with Israel, but with all unbelievers and all that remain. So when we read in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, that we're to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It is talking about that very kind of wrath. Jesus does not usually call persecution of the church wrath. Persecution is suffering. Persecution is, is, is suffering for the faith. But he doesn't call it wrath. Wrath is reserved for the enemies of Christ. Wrath is reserved for the unbeliever who's, who's chosen just to stay away from Jesus. Chosen to reject Jesus. Chosen to renounce Jesus. Chosen to ridicule Jesus. But then his exhortation to the church of Philadelphia was simple. He said, hold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have. Which means keep a grip on what you have. In other words, don't give up. Keep a grip on what you have. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. I'm telling you right now because you, 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 you may not realize it, but we're going, to, we're going to have to go through times of persecution as the church. So we need to just be ready for that. Continue on for he's coming back and when he does, it will be sudden. He says, I come quickly. By the way, when he says that to the church of Philadelphia, he's not judging them to say, I'm going to come to judge. I come quickly for you. I'll come quickly. Please understand, he's not speaking in any judgment terms toward this church. So that's another indication that he's coming quickly for that very reason. Yet we still need to be watching. And then he says, hold on to the victor's crown. And don't let anyone take it. No man may take your crown. Remember that this was the Stefano's crown. This is not the other crown which was a crown of royalty. This was, this was not one given at birth, physical birth. It, it was the crown of victory given to us at, at the time of our coming into, into the knowledge of Christ. Jesus is encouraging his saints to finish their course with victory. Finish what you began in Christ. He who began a good work in you is able to complete it until the day of Christ. So we must continue until the day of Christ. I guess in, in, in sports terms, maybe we can all understand. In other words, play the second half just as strongly as you played the first half. Or maybe even stronger. What's our vision for 2013 in this church? Start strong and stronger. That's, that's biblical. And that's the way it needs to be in our lives. Finish strong. Vance Havner, an old, old saint, wrote some great, great uh, Christian books. He once said this. He said, never forget that the man most likely to steal your crown is yourself. <laughs> Keep thy heart with all diligence. He quotes from Proverbs 4.23. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. He says, you are in no greater danger from anyone or anything than from yourself. 
Well, you cannot take that which God gives you as far as salvation, though we can certainly lose crowns. Almost to the point of giving them away if we're not careful. So we're given the promise, and we really need to hurry and close here in just a few minutes. But he gives a promise to this church. He says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Which means, you know, you, you guys come in week in, week out to church, <laughs> and you honor the Lord with your sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And then you, you go and you do the same where you work and where you, you know, where you live and all of that. There will be a temple that will go one day and will never come out. That's where we'll live. He says, And he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Now remember that the city of Philadelphia, remember this, it was very vulnerable to what? Earthquakes. It was very vulnerable to earthquakes. The land was very unstable. Oh, I should have given you that test. Because I mentioned that earlier. And you're like... <laughs> Jesus is promising them that he would make them a pillar in the New Jerusalem. Pillars that would not break because of the land being unstable because that land was not going to be unstable. Where we're going... There won't be any earthquakes. They would be a stable, strong city, no longer on shaky ground. By the way, you come to Jesus Christ and you're really no longer on shaky ground. Only if you walk away for the moment. The Lord says, get back over here. Quit walking over there. There's shaky ground out there. No, there's all kinds of stuff going on, but right here, it's safe. From a little strength, the Lord will make us pillars. It's what the Lord does with us. We see that we have security with Him, and we will be with Him forever, and we will have all these names written on us. A lot of names. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my new name. And now I'm going to write it all on you. That's the only time I'm going to want anything written on me. We belong to Christ. And that's, that's what that whole point is. When he writes his name on us, we belong to him. We belong to him. <laughs> Beautiful thought. You write your name, you know, when you go to school on your books, on your lunch pail. Well, we used to have lunch pails. What do they call them now? Lunch bags. Or we just call it McDonald's, you know, whatever. We used to write our name on it, you know. Because it belonged to us. We didn't want anybody messing with that. Lord said, I don't want anybody messing with you. Got my name on you. You're mine. You belong to me. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? 
Philippians 2 verses, whoops, wrong direction. Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That name that is above every name. Every knee shall bow. Ours will bow in heaven, but so will the knee, every knee in hell bow. They're not bowing today, but they will bow someday. And those on earth will bow. The last thing, of course, is the admonition to heed, and that's given to all the churches, which is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, says to the churches. Now, don't get stuck in remembering past accomplishments and what God has done. But live in the present with an eye to the future and be sensitive to the leading of God's Holy Spirit. May we truly understand that it is only when we give ourselves away to the Lord and the service of others that God will give back to us abundantly. May we set our lives on fire for Christ and may that cause others to come and watch us burn. God is living and powerful and desires to show himself strong through those who love him. May we be those people that God uses. May we be the church of Philadelphia in El Paso. May we be the church that is faithful and Christ-honoring. I want to leave you with 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. I believe this is the verse that establishes be strong Start strong and finish stronger. He says, I have fought the good fight. These are his last words to Timothy. Some of the last words to Timothy. Before he goes to his home with the Lord. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The Church of Philadelphia will fight the good fight. It will finish the race because it has kept the faith. Let us be the people who keep the faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone who holds the key of David. Amen. Let's pray.